Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Paul Schrader. Thank you. I, I was wondering, you know, just exactly uh, how many people would come out to uh, see a sort of uh, severe movie while the Jets were playing. <laughs> they're they're doing very well. They're they're sort of manhandling the uh, the Jaguars at the moment. Uh, so uh, that's that's good at least. Uh, affliction. Well, uh, not really much I can say anymore. The the media has been out there banging the drum, so you probably know most of what I would say. Um, you know, every film is a collaboration, and uh, and this one certainly is uh, between uh, myself and the uh, author of the book, Russell Banks. Uh, I really saw it as my task uh, to... You know to capture that book, and uh, I'm very happy that uh, Russell agrees I did. But uh, you know, I, I see the film probably a, more as a Banks Schrader film than as a Schrader Banks film. I mean, I think the film really, really is uh, Russell, uh, and it, it captures uh, the themes in the the book. And uh, and then of course, uh, you know, there's a, a Quite an extraordinary uh, performance, which is, in in many ways, um, in, informed by by Nick himself. But uh, you know, we can speak about that uh, after the screening. Thank you. I thought I want, would start by asking about Willem Dafoe um, and and the importance of that the narration and his character, because that seems so. As I've seen the film a few times now, it just seems so um, so integral and so important to what we take away from the film. So, could you talk about, yeah, about that? Yeah, I mean. The Russell Banks uh, said to me fairly early on in the rehearsals, he said, you know that the main character, of course, is the narrator. And I had just, I sort of assumed he meant the main character is me, you know, because I'm the author. But uh, as I got deeper and deeper into it, I started to realize, in fact, what he meant by that, which is that this is a story that is being told to you. And the person who is telling it is almost, or is as interesting as the person who is being told about. Um, he says right at the beginning, in telling this tale, I tell my, in telling this story, I tell my own story as well. But he, but you don't see his story. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he is, um, you know that he will be telling this story, you know, until, until the day he dies, that he's just wrapped by this story. And, uh, and so that... In, so that in uh, designing the film and in working on the narration, and it is very warm in here now that the movie is over, um, the... Um, 
Uh, I, I tried to do it in such a way that the first time you saw the film, you would think it's about Wade Whitehouse. And that should you see the film a second time, you would realize that it's about someone telling you about Wade Whitehouse. Yeah. There's an interesting moment in the beginning um, when, when Ralph, the narrator, says, um, you know, imagine this scene. He's, yeah. he's describing what you're seeing right in front of you. And of course, you don't, you don't literally need him to say this is what you're seeing, but it does have an interesting effect. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a folktale. Let us imagine, you know. Uh, and then at the end, there's a campfire and he finishes the story. And so it has that kind of uh, uh, folktale feeling about it. Right. Uh, and how different would the, what would the impact be if, if, if we just took that out, if we, didn't, if we still had the, the brother character but we didn't have that narration? How do you think that would shift the film, the experience? It, it, yeah, it, it, it is such a it, determined tale. Uh, by determined, I mean that you know this is not going to work out. Uh, and in fact, um, the very first line is also the first line of the novel. This is a story of my older brother's criminal behavior and strange disappearance. So there, there's not much suspense. You know the ending from the get-go, which, which it, and, uh, which is why Nick's performance in many ways is so extraordinary because he has a d determined character and he's trying to involve you in it. Um, so it is a, a determined world and without that echo of this so-called historian, this so-called purveyor of facts, uh, without that echo I, I think it would seem a, a very thin and one-dimensional sort of story. Mm -hmm. Um, now, Willem, I guess, had, had um, maybe seen, seen the script before Nick Nolte. That, um, he was interested in playing Wade Whitehouse, and the, the choice of Nick Nolte for that part, could you talk about Well, about what happened that? was, is I, I was making a film with Willem called Light Sleeper, and uh, this was after the film, but we, I think we were in ADR or something, and I had picked up this book in, the, in Shakespeare and Company, and I gave it to Wilma. I said, this is a really interesting book. You should read this. And then, of course, he wanted to play Wade. And, uh, but uh, I, I optioned the book myself and wrote the script. And uh, as I was finishing the script, I started realizing that Nolte was probably the best person to go to. And, uh, and Nick wanted to do it, uh, even though it, there were some complications. But and it took me about six years to finally get Nick's salary down to a position where I could finance the film. <laughs> and all through this time, you know, Willem kept saying, "What about Affliction?" You yeah. know, because he wanted to make it. But you were fixed. You were not going to make the film without Nick in that part. I I don't think I could. It would have worked with Willem, mm -hmm. um, because see, you know, this is a character that does some fairly unpleasant things, and. Um, and there's a kind of Nolte's persona and his physicality and his face is very, very inviting. You know, he seems like the sort of man you would like to know. He seems like you sort of wish he was your uncle or you would like to sit down and talk to him. He seems like he means well. He seems like <laughs> he's a kind of a good Joe. And, and you need that uh, in this character because...
he's a, he's he's a major screw up. And then unless you feel that he means well, why are you why do you care about him? Yeah. And 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 Wilm just that would not just the shape of his face and the nature of his uh, voice and his body. He would not give you that 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 quality. And without that quality, it would be a very hard movie to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, 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 um, the six years that you talked about um, in terms of financing, I'm just wondering how hard it was to get the film made. Were there other things aside from... from well, when, when Nolte first wanted to do it, he was um, in the midst of, a, of doing several big-budget Hollywood films, and his salary was, was around six or seven million dollars, which, in fact, it was more than the budget of this film. <laughs> and... Um, and, uh, you know, he felt that he should be able to get his prize. And even though I knew that we, we couldn't do it, I did spend several years trying to get the film financed at that level. And there just wasn't the money out there at that level for this kind of story. Um, and uh, yet Nick would drag this book around with him from movie to movie and say... Um, you know, I'm going to do this film. And he would call me up and I'd say, Nick, you know, you can't do it unless you cut your price. He said, okay, I'll cut my price. You call his lawyer. His lawyer said, no way he's going to cut his price. <laughs> so you know that the game was going on. Hmm. Um, and then finally, uh, Nick made a decision in his life to, to change the course of his career. Um, he got very fed up with doing those big Hollywood films. He got very bored. He... Uh, he, he he, tried, he started to got involved in AA, and you know when you're sitting in your trailer day after day not working, it's very hard to stay on AA. So he 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 just decided to start doing smaller films and working a lot and doing interesting roles. Mm -hmm. And once he made that career choice, which also meant leaving his agency, hmm. that meant he was suddenly now available to me. Hmm. And uh, and so even with his price um, greatly diminished. Uh, it was still hard to finance, yeah. and, and uh, as is so often the case with these films, it comes down to the last guy, and uh, you know it only takes one, but uh, you know, it, it, it was a struggle. It was also, I guess, a struggle to get the film released. I mean, this film, um, you started doing, you premiered the film at the Venice, I believe at Venice in 1997, Yeah. so um, and then it, it uh, had the U.S. premiere at Sundance almost a year ago, almost exactly a year yeah, ago. Yeah. What um, well, I mean what, now, now you can sort of look back in hindsight, and it's, the film is doing very well. It's it's a success. Yeah, and, and actually, the re, the reaction to the film this year is so much better than it was a year ago, and it's, it's, it's very strange. What better than it was at Sundance, or, or, or? Uh, better better than a year ago? I mean, uh, just the reaction of people walking out of of the screenings you have, private screenings, hmm. uh, and the reason I think was that. Uh, uh, that you know, usually when a, f a film gets delayed, it gets shop worn, and, and people start to feel like it's old goods and damaged goods. And the opposite happened with this film because it just the vibration kept humming and it bounced from festival to festival, and people started saying, "When are we going to get a chance to see it?" And I think that the subject matter was so sort of grim in a way that the fact that it hung out there and people st were still talking about it started to make it more and more acceptable to watch this uh, downbeat mm -hmm. film. So by the time we opened it uh, a week or two ago, it f 
had the feeling of a, uh, a production that's been out of town for a year and has come in and, and opened up rather than a film that uh, uh, was on the shelf. So that worked to my advantage. Plus, at the time frame when this first was ready, I was up, we would have been up square against Sweet Hereafter. Uh, which the, the cinematographer of this film, Paul Sarasi, went right from Sweeter After to Affliction. So you had two Russell Banks books shot in the winter uh, back to back. And, um, and uh, I, you know, I would not, and because Sweeter After had a jump on me in terms of promotion and, and it had a distributor, we were always, you know, the other Russell Banks movie. So uh, be when events conspired to put a year between the two of us, it helped. Yeah. And, and how those events conspired because the, um, the production company that financed the film ran into financial trouble. And it had a number of films that it couldn't uh, find distribution for. Is this Largo? Largo. Yeah. And so th they decided to put all the films in a package. And then they were going to sell it to a new startup distributor. Hmm. And that was going to save uh, the company and save everybody's situation. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, that new startup company never got the money. And uh, they wasted five, six months on this uh, uh, pipe dream. It would have been nice if it had happened, but it didn't happen. And so finally, JVC, which is the money, said to Largo, you know, uh, just split the films up, sell them for what you can get. And as soon as they said that, uh, then we could get a distributor. And, uh, but by that time, it was spring. And, um, and uh, so they decided to wait till the award season mm -hmm. to, to open the film. Which seems to be working, it seems. <laughs> it, it seems to be. Yeah. Um, did you, you said in the beginning that you saw this as more of a Russell Banks film a bit more of his film than yours, but it's so, what's interesting is how much it does, it is of a piece with your other work. It seems to yeah. fit so well. So what, I mean, what do you think? Well, it's just, I mean, there are similarities. Um, I have an older sibling. I was raised in the snow country. Uh, my uh, father, you know, was very strong-willed. But, and I am not, but I'm not the product of an alcoholic abusive environment. Uh, and, and Russell was, you know. And um, uh, I had none of those experiences growing up of family violence and alcoholism. Uh, so that uh, I'm really sort of tapping into Russell's experience rather than my own. And, and, and I guess that's why I, I don't feel that you know, it's not a story I would have written on my own because right. those are not my experiences. Um, does it, how does this uh, make it feel to you as a director um, when you're, when um, I guess in a way you have a, a bit of the distance and that it's not your, it didn't mm -hmm. come from you. I mean, Taxi Driver um, seemed to be so confessional. I mean, of, of course, Scorsese directed it, but it was um, even, and looking at the, the press material for that film, the press releases were t talked about your marriage falling apart mm -hmm. and going through manic depression and all this incredible um, confessional material. Um, in, in adapting uh, somebody else's material, does it fr help you as a director? Does it free you to uh, shape the material as opposed to it coming d directly from your life? Well, what, what tends to happen in, in the creative life, you know, it's, the creative life has its 
ups and downs, and you, you have lean years and you have fat years. And um, when you hit those lean years, you start, you know, adapting. Uh, you know, you start looking for other stuff you can borrow from. Uh, because, you know, people don't, you know, artists don't necessarily have a lot to say. Uh, and they certainly don't, you know, have something new to say every year, as, as any of the films of Woody Allen can testify to. <laughs> uh, you know, you just don't have that much new to say. Um, and... Uh, so um, I, I ran into a period there where I wasn't getting any really uh, strong original ideas, so I started adapting. I adapted uh, uh, Russell Bank, Elmore uh, uh, Leonard, and, and this. Uh, strangely enough, uh, starting last year, um, I've, I've swung back into a, a, a cycle of, of very aggressively writing again. Mm -hmm. But uh, this came out of that period when I was looking after Light Sleeper, which was uh, very personal, and, and, and to me, the closest thing to, to, my, to, to myself, you know, it's the most personal film for me. Mm -hmm. uh, then I really didn't have much to say for a while, and, and so I was looking around for books a lot. Hmm. And what's the adaptation process like? I mean, this book, um, it, is, it has been described, and it, it, in a lot of ways, is extremely faithful. I mean, whole passages of dialogue and narration um, are intact, but, you, but still... Um, it must not. It can't be easy to take um, a 350-page novel and, and adapt it. So well, it's a lot easier than a 650-page novel. <laughs> you know, it, particularly one like *Last Temptation of Christ*, which is you know mm -hmm. uh, that sort of philosophical book. Right. Um, this is fairly faithful. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, some subplots got dropped, mm -hmm. um, and uh, but. Uh, <coughs> The whole the structure is essentially the same. The events are essentially the same. Uh, it's very, very close. Mm -hmm. uh, Touch, which I did before this from Melvin Leonard, was even closer. I mean, Touch was literally a case where the paperback is folded on top of the typewriter, you know, and you turn the page and turn the page, you know. <laughs> um, the, uh, no, I mean, adapting the, different tasks. You know, sometimes you go into a book and you just gut the book and you grab something that's worthwhile and you throw everything else out. Sometimes you try to freeze dry it and condense it. Sometimes you reach in a book like Last Temptation, there were maybe five or six different movies in there and you had to reach in and find the one you wanted. Uh, Affliction, there weren't that many movies in there. There were maybe two or three different ones, but there was really only one that was worth, I thought, having. Um, and uh, so that every process of adaptation is different, and a lot of it has to do with how much you respect the underlying material. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, your sort of uh, your approach to directing. You said um, we were talking about the film upstairs when we were in the editing area of the museum, and you talked about how you used almost almost everything you shot, almost every setup that you shot. So, I mean, was this a film that you you really like visualized and had in your head during before, uh, you, before you shot? Or? Well, not at the script stage. Right. At the script stage, I don't. I never think of visuals at the script stage. But in pre-production, yes. Uh, you know, as my budgets got get smaller, and this was a six million dollar film. Uh, you know, I don't like to make films that look like they're inexpensive. So then you have to figure out ways to use that money very decisively. And uh, so much of of the budget of a normal film just goes to waste. You know. You use half of the 
setups you do, you know. You know, if you shoot for 15 weeks, you know, three of those weeks are on the cutting room floor. So you have to try to make, when you're on a tight budget, make a hard decisions beforehand. You know, am I going to use this shot? You know, and, and uh, if I'm going to go in there, I'm going to get seven setups, you know, and bang, I'm going to use all of them. Well, that works for a story like this, because this is such an icy, predetermined kind of universe that a kind of predetermined style is not that bad uh, for this kind of story. And in that way, you're almost executing the, the script rather than exploring it. Um, the next one I'm doing, the one I'm preparing right now, I, I feel the opposite way toward it. Uh, I, I feel that I have to learn how to direct that movie while I'm directing it. But this one, I knew beforehand. I want to ask you sort of an odd technical question, but um, so many of, there's so much um, nuance and subtlety in the behavior in the film, and um, some of the terrific scenes um, take place in cars. And I always wonder, like, how do you direct a car scene? Because you can't be in there, like, well, and maybe it's technically tough to... Uh, but the, the wonderful scene in the very beginning of the film with um, yeah. Nick and, and his daughter. Uh, well, that was that scene because of the night problem. Yeah. That was uh, done with rear projection. So, <laughs> so in fact, you you are there. You know, yeah. there's a uh, screen rolling in the background. Okay. But normally on car mounts, um, uh, you know, you rehearse the scene. When the, when the car is stationary, and then you, you hit the road. And you're, you have a monitor, you're on the walkie, you're listening, you know. But in, in, uh, in some ways, actors like it better, because uh, you can't say cut. Uh, uh, you know, if an actor flubs, you know, you're the, there, there's no one at the camera. The camera has is, is been taped off, and right. it's, it's rolling. And uh, so that if an actor screws up, you know, you just get on the walkie and say, you know, start from the top. So that uh, in ways, actors so often feel somewhat more free in, in a car. And also you, you shoot until you run out of the mag, uh, out of film. So you just ride around. You shoot hmm. one take. When you're done, you start it again, start it again, start hmm. it again, until finally you run out of film, and then that's the end of that setup. Hmm. And you have to go back and reload. So that... Um, uh, but uh, uh, car mounts are, are very tedious to shoot because they uh, take so much time to set up. You know. and, and what was the sort of rehearsal um, time in the film? I mean, the, the performance is not only Nick Nolte's, but um, Sissy Spacek and James Coburn. There are so many great performances in the film. I mean, was there sort of extra time to rehearse, or how did that Well, happen? there was a, two weeks, you know, mm -hmm. which is sort of normal in a, in a strong character piece. Uh, Nick had had been living with this so long, had pre so prepared it. He had prepared little books on all the other characters. So my wife, who plays his ex-wife, Mary Beth, we were talking about a scene, and she asked me a question. I didn't quite have the answer, and he opened up his book. He said, well, you know, and he had the whole thing written out. <laughs> and, and, and so his level of commitment was so strong and uh, that he created a kind of bar of achievement, and the other actors just had to rise to that. And because uh, I remember, you know, Coburn, for example, um, is, is a, an old-time kind of actor, you know, from a, sort of a lazy generation. 
you know, where's my money, where's my mark? And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and uh, I wanted to push him a little bit, and uh, so I flew out to uh, Los Angeles to have dinner with him. And, I, and uh, he was a little uncertain why we were having dinner, and I said, uh, uh, so I just want to warn you of the nature of uh, the actor you're working with, uh, Mr. Nolte. You know, I said, Nick takes this stuff very, very serious. And uh, he gets very, very deeply into the character, and he lives through the character, and his, his room is full of notes, and, and he, know, he just pours himself into it. And so, uh, James, that if, um, if he senses that you're walking through this film, I said, you know, it may not happen the first day, but by the second day, he's going to be all over you. And when that happens, I just want you to know that I'm not going to be there to, to defend you. Hmm. And um, so Colbert looked at me and said, uh, you mean like real acting? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I said, yeah, you know, sort of like real acting. He said, I, I can do that, you know. They, they don't ask me much, but I, I can do it. <laughs> so, in fact, I, I used Nolte's commitment to drive all the other performances. And it was easy for him once he was on the set? I mean, the scene um, after the... Um, when he comes upstairs with Margie when the mother is dead, um, and his reaction, Coburn's yeah. reaction, is just so touching, mm -hmm. and it's so... Awkward, um, you know, I'm just wondering, like, how that, was it sort of easy for him to get that as an actor? Well, you know, th that was an interesting situation because um, normally, you know, I didn't do that many takes, you know, because you're, you have to keep moving. So two, three takes, you're, you're, you move on. And Coburn read that line in a way that we had not rehearsed it. And I asked him, I said, why did you do it that way? And he said, uh, I said, oh, I thought it would be better. Hmm. I, was sitting, I, was sitting, I was sitting in my trailer, and I thought that would be a better way to do it. I said, well, I, I don't know. Let's do it some more. And for, for one of the few times in the film, I ran up a takes, and I, we eventually went up to 10 or 12 takes, and I got him back to where he was in rehearsal. But I was wrong. Hmm. And the editing room, uh, you know, I, used the, I started out using the take that I wanted. And I kept hmm. saying, you know, let's look at that first take again. Let's look at that take that I didn't like. Hmm. And he was right. His first take was right on the nose, and I eventually got him back to where he shouldn't have been. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a film critic, you wrote a, a very influential um, piece on film noir. It was probably the article that really sparked the American interest in film noir, which now is sort of out of, out yeah. of control. But um, do, how much do you like to play with, um, with genre expectations? I mean, this is a film that has elements of a thriller, murder mystery. I'm, I'm imagining that might have helped get the film made or get it sold. Well, you, you twist a lot of the expectations. Yeah, well, genre is a very useful tool, you know, because it, it, it sets up a series of preconceptions in the audience in which you can then uh, manipulate and, mm -hmm. and play with, you know. So, uh, uh, just like, you know, they're, they're running psycho, psycho out there in the lobby, well, the, the manipulation there is you, you have a... Uh, a woman in danger genre, and you kill the woman off. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, it's a great way to manipulate the genre. Uh, and uh, this kind of tale, what I liked a lot about the book is that what pretends to be 
the story is in fact irrelevant and what pretends to be the subplot is in fact the story. So you're sort of watching this thing about a hunting accident and then about two-thirds of the way through the book and the movie you realize that you know, there was no accident and that this man is going crazy and that it was always about the father and it's going to end being about the father. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but, you know, without that device of the hunting accident, of the small town sheriff who's going to redeem himself in the eyes of his community by solving this murder, without that device, you couldn't have slipped into that yeah. rather well-worn and, and threadbare territory of fathers and sons. How does that come into play when you're trying to sell the film? I imagine it might have been I mean, now the film, everybody can enjoy the success of the film, but I'm sure there must have been a time when, um, well, when mean, people were wondering, how, what do we do with this? Well, I mean, <laughs> the, you know, the script was a script, and, and, yeah. and, and it, 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 there was trouble financing it because it was what it was. But when you described it, you would always say, it's about uh, a, a small-town sheriff in a hunting accident, and he, and, he, and he sets out to solve the murder. Right. You know, that, that's, how, that's, how you get pe that's how you get people to read the script. <laughs> You know, right. just like you get people to watch the movie by thinking, oh, you know, uh, you know, who did it? Who did it? You know, right. who's up to what? You know. Mm -hmm. Okay, one, um, give you and the audience time to ask questions, and you could ask. We've been talking about Affliction, but feel free to ask about other other films. Yeah, I just uh, I really enjoyed the film a lot. Um, I just had a question more about. Sissy SpaceX role? Did she have that character have a lot more dialogue in the book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, decisions have to be made, and and the women did suffer. You know, uh, the in the book, the female characters were were more fleshed out, and uh, and that was just a, an exercise of time. You know. Uh, the attention span of an audience for this kind of tale is only of a certain length. And you get past that length and you're in trouble. And so cuts have to, decisions have to be made. Uh, so uh, subplots were dropped. The, his ex-wife in the book has an affair with his lawyer. And, and he, Wade, has an, he goes and he sleeps with Hetty, who's that blonde girl that you oh, see with, that yeah. you see in the truck, yeah. you know, um, he goes and sleeps with her. And, and uh, Nick used to always say we were shooting. He said, "I, he said, I still like that heady subplot." But <laughs> 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 I don't know why we had to cut that out. <laughs> After you did the movie Light of Day, you said that you go back to a meat and potato style, and um, to some extent, I think you kind of do. Well, what what happened was is that um, that's thing that I started setting in motion with Gigolo, which came from Conformist, um, just uh, blossomed, but then it, then it took evil root. Uh, so, you know, it started out with Gigolo and then went on to Miami Vice and then went on to this, and finally you reached uh, a time in film history where uh, style was all. And that uh, it was just so excessive 
between the you know the, the two main influences in film today are, are uh, music video and TV commercials, you know, and, and where they really have the money to spend, and 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 that's what drives visual literacy. Those two items, or and perhaps now uh, 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 video games, uh, the three-dimensional sort, and that drives visual literacy, and so I, I started realizing that I. I can't compete in that area. First of all, I'm not a shooter. By that I mean I'm not a cinematographer. I'm a writer. So first of all, my instincts aren't in that area. And secondly, I don't have the kind of money that these people have to play with all these toys. So maybe it was time to back off. And that the most radical thing for me to do was to put the camera on a tripod. And so that was the thinking on uh, Affliction, which is to back off and, and shoot this in a much more staid fashion. Um, and and uh, so that's what happened. Yeah, it's a, it's a guy named Michael Brook. He comes out of Peter Gabriel's uh, school. Uh, he produces albums for... Uh, Real World, is that Gabriel's label? Uh, anyway, um, so he had been recommended to me. Uh, it's all computer. You know, it's a, one of those scores that's totally put in the computer, and uh, uh, it's a very strange way to, to work, you know, for the director because you're constantly, you know, you're sitting there with the composer and you want to add a couple notes to a cue. Like the opening cue here is maybe 70, 80 tracks. You know, it sounds very thin and simple, but it's a lot of tracks, a lot of stuff. And you say, well, why don't we add a, you know, a little bit of a bass line here? He says, oh, and he'll go through his computer, he'll find it and, and boot it over. And he's got a bass right there. I said, well, why don't you just play the bass? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, no, but that's not the way it works. It's all moved around in the computer. You, you said that you um, actually cut this film on a, um, an old-fashioned flatbed editing system, and that's pretty unusual these days to uh, not use a computer editing system. Yeah, well, because I, I shot the film so close to the bone in order to put all the money on screen that there wasn't that much fat. And... Uh, uh, a lot of it, I mean, you know, at the end of it, there's, o there's only 13 setups we didn't use. And a lot of it was just shot on the floor. So you're here, you move over to here, cut, boom, cut. And so there's not a lot for the editor to do in that situation, but to take off the trims and, and then put it together. And uh, there was a $100,000 difference between a computer and a, and a chem. And I just said, you know, why spend the 100000 um, you know, we'll just do it on the chem because I, I know where the cuts are. Hmm. Yeah, I uh, was lucky enough to see this film last spring when we showed the Avenue uh, mm -hmm. in the city. And uh, I mean, I'm thrilled that it's just as powerful <laughs> like today. But I was, uh, was wondering about, I was wondering about uh, just, just the shooting. Was, was, there, was, there, was there any studio work done? Uh, did you shoot it? In sequence, and how did you like, deal with the location? Or how did you deal with the weather? Because in the scenes where it's snowing, it appears to be like really snowing, and I would think it'd be some sort of like, continuity concern. Yeah, we did not make any snow. 
uh, we, we shot in Quebec. I went up to Quebec because I wanted a deep, strong winter, and I got one. I wanted a winter where there would never be a thaw and where you would never see dirt or grass, and we got that kind of winter. Uh, odds are, if you're in Quebec, you, you will get that kind of winter. Um, and so we never have made snow. Uh, this film, A Simple Plan, which is out, uh, there's a lot of computerized snow in there. But there's no computer snow here. Um, and, uh, and, and what happens is that when it starts to snow, you, you start running around like, like, like a crazy person because often you're in, you're in a continuity problem, you know. And uh, you try to wrap it up before it finishes snowing. Uh, and we were able to do that in the in the cases where it was snowing. Did you shoot in sequence? Or did you no, no. Yeah, I mean that's uh, uh, shooting in sequence is a luxury that very, very few, if any, uh, filmmakers can afford. Uh, it was all on location. The only stage work that was ever done was for that opening scene, in the car, because that was rear projection. Because there's there's no way you can shoot. You know, the light only is in that, only about ten minutes of the night is that light that quality. You know, so you, you'd have to come back every night for five weeks to shoot that scene. So instead, you shoot it as a rear projection. So we shot that in a, on a stage as a rear projection. Um, but the rest was, uh, yeah, on location. How did um, coming from the background of being a film critic influence your work as a director and writer? Well, uh, as much for good as bad, maybe in fact more for bad. Uh, because a, a, a critic, in many ways, is like a um, medical examiner. You know, you open up the cadaver and you want to see how and why it lived. And, uh, and a writer, a filmmaker, is, on the other hand, much like a pregnant woman. You know, you're just trying to keep this thing alive and nurse it uh, and feed it and hope that it comes out alive. And so that. You have to be very careful not to let the medical examiner into the operating room. I mean, the the delivery room. <laughs> you know, because he will he will kill that baby. <laughs> He'll just tear it apart and say, you know, uh, oh, this is an interesting baby. <laughs> and uh, so that you have to work to keep that that whole analytic mindset back, and you have to accept and and and. and uh, and having been a critic, you, you never are fully successful successful at this. But you have to try to accept the mystery of situations, mm. you know. And, and sometimes characters say something, and you say somebody says, "Well, why do they say that?" I'm not sure. I'm not sure why they say that. Um, they say it, and it makes sense for them to say it, and they know why they say it. But I, I maybe they maybe they don't know why they say it, you know. And but it feels right. And the critic part of the critic part of you is is, is you know. Resist that, yeah. but you you have to work hard to pursue uh, the mystery, um, and uh, and uh, uh, I mean there's a lot of wonderful things you learn as a critic. You learn um, uh, analytic discipline. You learn how to how to break down the story. You know how to run your themes and run your metaphors. That's all stuff that you figured out as a critic. But what you what you've lost. Is uh, is a kind of illogic of uh, of normal life, which you have to try to get back. Do you get in a in a sort of zone or a feeling when you're making the film? I mean, when you're in the process of making 
affliction where you know that sort of everything's working, that you're that you're doing something that's going to be special or, or unique? Yeah, I think often um, the uh, you know you get a, you you do get a, a feeling that you're doing good work, and and, and the feeling that starts to permeate the production. I remember I ran into someone several years after Taxi Driver came out, and I said, you know, who'd have thunk it, you know? And this was a, a crew member, and he said, oh, we knew, we knew. You know, the, the feeling was in the crew. We all knew we were, do we were doing something really good. And uh, so often that happens. It just feeds through the production. When you're writing and conceptualizing, how much do you use words? And do you ever use, like, pictograms or drawings or other kinds of ways to represent ideas yourself? Uh, uh, she asked about the writing process. Yeah. Uh... I, uh, I, this is a, actually a, a lecture I give that lasts about two hours, so I'm gonna, I, I can't <laughs> go into it in depth, but um, uh, I believe that screenwriting is part of the oral tradition, not part of the literary one, and that a movie is something that is told, and it has to be told, and that um, you, you tell, and you outline, and you retell, and and you do this over and over. Uh, film criticism behind become a uh, filmmaker full time. Why did you leave film criticism to become a full time filmmaker? Um, there's two answers. One which is sort of truthful, and one which is not. <laughs> um, I, the untruthful one. Well, they're both true. It depends how you one writes one's personal history. I I always thought I wanted to be a film critic. And then I ran into a whole series of problems in my life which could not be addressed by nonfiction. And I had some potent fantasies, and I, I, I had to give life to these demons before these demons gave life to me. Um, and that was Taxi Driver. And that's the story I like to tell and I like to believe that I got involved in filmmaking as therapy and that it was a fully functional form of expression and it remains fully functional. Some years back I ran into Don Pennebaker who I had interviewed when I was a critic and we were talking and I said this, I said, uh, I said you know I never intended to be a filmmaker, I always wanted to be a critic. He said that's not true. He said well, you interviewed me. He said I was with my wife at the time, I went back to my room afterward and I said, I said there's a, there's a fellow who won't be a critic long. <laughs> he, said, he said, you are already talking like a filmmaker. Hmm. So I, uh, I, I guess it's both true. You know, I, uh, you know uh, I, I did run into a point where, uh, the where the therapeutic value of fiction was absolutely necessary. But on the other hand, I guess I was already thinking of going there too. Anyway, thanks for coming. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.